Let's open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, and we'll read from verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everybody. Uh, I want to begin uh, by saying thank you uh, to you, church, for allowing um, my family and me to go away for the last several weeks on holiday. Um, we traveled around Thailand for a few weeks, and it was fantastic. Um, great weather, beautiful beaches, amazing juicy coconuts, awesome animals, and lots and lots and lots of, well, these things. Boom. Wait for it. There's lots of these things. Uh, everywhere we went, there these things were. You can look on the back screen if that's easier. That's a bit, yeah. Uh, my girls asked me what these things were. Uh, and instead of trying to explain the animistic ritual beliefs and practices of the Thai people that predate the arrival of Buddhism to the country to a six and three year old, I instead just said they were houses for fairies. That's. Uh, which. Upon further investigation, is actually not too far from the truth. Uh, these, uh, I, I did some research while I was there because I didn't know what they were at first either. Um, these things are called spirit houses, in case you didn't know that. Uh, they are literally on every single street, uh, every, everywhere we went in Thailand. You see them outside of shops, next to houses, um, in the middle of nowhere, in the jungle, as you drive along the highway. You see these things everywhere. Um, you see, the Thai people believe that there are these unseen spirits. Some of them are good, some of them not so good, uh, and they are just all over the place. They inhabit the land. And in order to keep these spirits happy so that they won't harm you or ruin your crops or will give you good health or good luck or something like that, uh, people will build these spirit houses for them to live in. Isn't that nice? Um, then they'll often leave like open bottles of Coke um, with straws sticking out, slices of pineapple, flowers, candles, uh, biscuits, all out on these spirit houses to appease these spirits. Um, these actions, in case you're wondering, are not too dissimilar from stories uh, we read in the Bible of people bowing down to shrines of local gods or goddesses or participating in rituals to gain their favor or keeping artifacts like carved wood or sculpted rocks or minerals or whatever in their house to protect them. It's not too dissimilar from that. Now, if you read through, through those passages or you walk down the streets of Thailand and you see all these 
shrines with bottles of Fanta uh, with straws sticking out of them, you might think that's a bit silly and outdated, right? Uh, you really think that praying to a gold statue or leaving a bag of M&Ms on a tiny house are going to do anything? Um, we may feel even very enlightened that we've moved past all that primeval stuff in, in the Western world, right? Uh, well, we begin our Hot topic series today with a question about angels, demons, and Satan. Uh, in our investigation of these subjects in the Bible, you might be very surprised to find out that perhaps in some way, the people of Thailand aren't too far off about the spiritual world. Uh, now, before you start trying to construct your own fairy house, um, let's take a look at what the Bible has to say uh, about these benevolent and malevolent forces that are out there. And from there, more importantly, I want to see uh, how Scripture is calling you and I to respond to all of this. But before we go any further, I think it's wise that we pray. So would you pray with me? Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to explore your word um, over the, these next couple weeks as we deal with these um, hot topics uh, over difficult or complex issues. Lord, we pray um, that your Holy Spirit would just um, dwell amongst us, that you'd give us peace, unity around your word, insight, um, as well as um, an appropriate passionate response in how you're calling us to live to all of these things out in this world that's often so hostile to you. We love you, and we pray that, um, yeah, you would help us as we study these topics today. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, in the passage that was uh, just read for us earlier, um, one of Jesus' followers, a man named Paul, is writing instructions to a church that he started in a city called Ephesus. Um, he leaves them words of wisdom, reminding them of uh, who Jesus is and how we ought to live as his people. And at the conclusion of his letter, he says something that enlightened postmodern people like you and I might find shocking. Uh, take a look again, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and following. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That statement right there, many people in Sydney today, and many even, maybe even many people who would call themselves Christians, will find that actually quite hard to believe. Uh, Paul is saying that our real struggle in this life is against forces and powers that you and I cannot see. And this battle is vitally important to understand correctly. Well, what is this battle? Well, Jesus tells us in John chapter 10 that humans have an enemy, a thief whose sole purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy us. That's a pretty big claim, isn't it? Now, if I asked you what your greatest struggle in life is, you would not respond by saying, well, my greatest struggle is against the powers of the dark world and the forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's probably not the first thing that would come out of your mouth. Most likely you would say, well, I'm, I'm really struggling with my mortgage repayments. Uh, that's my real problem. If I could just earn more money uh, and be able to pay this off sooner, that would, that would get rid of that issue, right? Or my biggest problem is these renovations that are going on in my house right now. If I could just get this guest bathroom finished, you know, the price of my house would go up. I, I'd feel a lot less stressed out. Or maybe your issue is with 
Uh, anxiety. You know, my life's a bit chaotic. I don't know what's going on. I just feel anxious all the time. I don't know who I can trust or how I should feel. Or my struggle, my real struggle, is my kids. Trying to get them to do the right thing, to just clean their room. Why don't you just clean your room? I, or listening to me, or stop hanging out with the wrong crowd, or just engage with me for once in your life. Just focus, right? Or maybe my struggle is my job. I hate my job, right? If, and so if I can just find somewhere that pays me well for doing what I love with people that I like, then uh, that would be fantastic, right? All of my struggles would be gone. But Paul says if we believe those sorts of things are our greatest adversaries, we're incredibly mistaken. Um, in this passage, he goes on to describe in detail what preparing for this battle actually looks like. And in verse 16, he says, In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. A flaming arrow aimed at your heart by an enemy who is out to get you seems like a very big and immediate struggle. Uh, someone who is actively trying to harm you and destroy you, that seems more pertinent to me than home renovations or your work environment, I would think. With that said, when Paul talks about this spiritual war that is happening, um, what does he mean? Well, let's go back to um, our original question here to begin this exploration. Uh, the Bible tells us, first of all, that there is this, this world that we live in, this created physical material world that you and I occupy, breathe, work, play, eat, and think in, what we can see and hear and feel and reason. There is, however, the Bible says, another world, a world that overlaps with this physical world that we inhabit. This world is not physical or material, but spiritual, invisible, intangible. Uh, this shouldn't startle us too much, in case you think that sounds weird, because I assume that you are here um, because you are here to worship God, or at least find out more about God, uh, a God that you probably didn't expect to be wearing a name tag, handing you a Bible and shaking your hand as you walked in. Hi, I'm God. Nice to meet you. You, you probably didn't expect that to happen, um, because if there is a God uh, and he made the world and everything in it, he'd probably be too big to fit inside this church, I would think. Um, and if he is big, as big as we think he is, the Hubble telescope would have probably picked up photos of at least his pinky toe out in space somewhere. Uh, but it hasn't, and it would be weird if it did. So we reason that God then must be present, but invisible. Right? God is a spiritual being, so we can come in here and meet with him in this place, and yet, yet it seems okay. None of us are kind of too freaked out by that. We're generally okay with that. Well, the Bible goes on to say that this same spiritual unseen world that God inhabits is full of other beings and other activity. Beings not in any way, shape, or form as powerful as God himself, but powerful and active nonetheless. Scripture calls these good spirit beings angels and these not-so-good spirit beings demons. And all of them are at work. Well, because my time is limited, um, I've provided a printout. This is over on the Connect desk if you want to grab it. Um, basically, what this does is goes into great detail about almost everything the Bible will tell us about angels, demons, and Satan. Because um, this would take me hours and hours to go through, and you don't want to listen to me that, for that long. And so it's also going to be a, available on Facebook and online. So if you want to grab that and have a bunch of those questions specifically answered, you can go do that after the service. And I'm providing you uh, this because 
I'm actually not going to address the first of our two hot topic questions today. Um, the first of which is, what does the Bible say about angels, demons, and Satan? I'm not really going to talk about that, which should maybe surprise you, because that seems like the big question. Well, that's actually answered here, so you can do that later. Um, instead, I'm going to focus our time on the second question that was attached to that first question, which is this, um, which I think is far more important. And that question is, what do I need to know about the power and influence of these spiritual forces, and how should I respond? See, getting those questions right is by far more important than the answers that you'll actually find in this printout about angels and demons and Satan. Why? Because... Um, Finding out Satan is red, has horns, and a pitchfork, or not, is not nearly as important as what he is up to and why it matters to you and I in this life right now. So let's begin that journey. Uh, in Genesis chapter 2, we meet two people named Adam and Eve who have this special relationship with each other, with the world around them, and with God. The text tells us that they walk around naked and feel no shame, like I do in my house sometimes. Um, not really, I don't, yeah. Um, everything in their world as, is as it should be. There's no hunger, there's no despair, there's no selfishness, there's no idolatry. Every relationship is in perfect harmony. Uh, in Genesis 3, we are introduced to the villain of the story, this serpent. The serpent confronts Adam and Eve, not through some kind of big, clever, uh, and clearly wrong temptation, but by asking them a question, and the question is this. Did God really say? Did God really say that? Is what God said really true? Uh, don't you think this thing uh, that I'm asking you to do will help you to be like God, and that's what he really wants for you, to be just like him? Well, if you're unaware what happens next in the story, this subtle logic makes complete sense to Adam and Eve. They eat a fruit God commanded them not to eat, and immediately things change. Sin, uh, which is a word that basically means living out of step with how God designed, enters in. They realize that they're naked. They try to cover themselves up. They attempt to hide from God. Uh, they begin blaming one another, pointing the finger at themselves, um, at each other. Um, ultimately, the harmony they once enjoyed with God, with each other, and the world is just all ruined. In Genesis chapter 4, the very next chapter, we see this sin... Um, this brokenness escalate. Two brothers go to work, and they bring an, an offering, a gift to God. One brother becomes jealous of the other one's offering, so he kills him, his own brother. Uh, the story continues through the book of Genesis as humans spread throughout the earth. Um, this sin spreads with them. And not very long into the story, it says, God peeks over the lip of heaven, and what he sees is tragic. Genesis 6, 5, and 6 tells us this. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of he, the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of, human, of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. This serpent, whom the Bible later reveals to us is Satan, a fallen angel who attempted to put himself in God's place, gently and subtly uh, manipulate humans to choose anything other than God for, as what they live for. Uh, this affects, at first, two individuals, and then it spreads into their family, 
And then it moves from their family to other families and to culture and f- until the entire world is affected by this thing called sin. This turning people away from God thing Satan is doing happens everywhere all the time. It's not just back in the day, but it's happening now. You might not think about this spiritual warfare um, that is constantly happening consciously, but I can guarantee you that you feel it happening if you think about it. Yeah, see, you are very aware of it when you listen to the news that a woman, a Northern Beaches woman who called the police at her Minnesota home because she heard a woman screaming outside was shot and killed by the very police officers she called on for help. You see it, uh, the threads of spiritual warfare happening when people in the church are actively bitter, divisive, unwelcoming, unrepentant, abusive, or lazy when you know that the church should be unified and loving and compassionate and forgiving. You see it as you walk down the streets of Thailand where people seem to know that there's this spiritual battle going on. There's a conflict. They have no idea how to exactly be on the right side of it. And so they just leave out bottles of Coke, hoping that that will be enough to placate these spirits that are waging war around them. You see it in positive ways, when things that you thought never could happen do happen. When that family member you've been praying for for years and years calls you out of the blue and says, look, I've, I've found Jesus. After all this time, I found Jesus. Or maybe you're driving on down the highway and your car blows a tire on the freeway, your car spins out and somehow you don't hit a single thing, you end up perfectly on the side of the road out of harm's way. And you're like, how did, how did that happen? There are verses like 1 Peter chapter 5, 7 to 9 that say, cast all your anxiety on Jesus because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Uh, or passages like 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15 to 17. It says, When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. They were in trouble. He thinks he's... Um, Disaster's coming. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What this tells us is that our real struggle is not against our bank accounts or our relationship or against the Maroons. Is that right? Maroons? It's not Maroons, even though it's spelled that way. Anyway, it's not, about, it's not against proper pronunciation or anything else we get ourselves caught up in. See, the Bible wants us to know there's actually a bigger battle out there going on around us, a battle in the spiritual realms where angels and demons fight, where we have an enemy who is uh, out to make us blind to God's incredible love for us and the life that Jesus offers us, who will do anything and everything in his power to pull the wool over our eyes so that we do anything but fix our eyes on Jesus. This battle is more important and, and more serious than anything else that's going on. It's literally life and death. I remember uh, Lloyd and Fleur, um, on one of their home assignments here a few years ago, 
told us about um, one of the practices of the local Sundanese people uh, they were working with uh, in Indonesia. Uh, these people who are predominantly Muslims who believe um, Allah is all-powerful, uh, they do something that doesn't really match that belief. Um, th when a baby is born in that community, they said that they, uh, the people, the family, would bury the placenta underneath the house where it will be safe. Uh, the reason why they do this is to ward off evil spirits. Uh, they believe that if they do not do this, their child will be tormented by malevolent forces for his or her entire life. Uh, and though we might find these sorts of rituals archaic, uh, people around the world uh, and throughout history, and even in many parts of the world today, realize something that we do not, that there's actually a battle going on for our souls. Uh, and it's only recently, and in the, Western, in the Western world, that we think ourselves to have outgrown these sorts of beliefs. But this is serious. If people are actually doing that sort of thing, hoping, wishing that they can make these spirits happy with them, um, and there's this battle that's going on, this is about eternity that we're talking about. And if, if this is all true, then, how are we called to respond well, let me just give you a few thoughts from God's word. Uh, first of all, there is a spiritual war that's going on, but the war has actually already been won. In case you didn't know that, the war has been won. That's not like this two-sided battle. It's, it's one-sided. I love this verse from Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Paul says, When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ, with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What this means is that if you belong to Jesus, you are now under God's protection, and Satan and his accusations no longer have any power over you. You've been set free. At the cross, Jesus took the best Satan could throw at him, and he nailed it there. And he rose from the grave, rendering Satan's plans null and void to those who are in Jesus. That we don't have to live in fear anymore, wondering what's going to happen, what's going to become of us, leave a bottle of Coke out, uh, or bury placentas in the ground, uh, because Jesus, in Jesus, victory is assured. The, the fight's over. It's already won. This is incredibly good news, which is probably why it's actually called good news, in case you're wondering that. That's very good news. Second, um, even though the war has been won, does not mean Satan is done fighting. Uh, he knows he's lost, uh, it, but it's not as movie pictures and stuff, cartoons show you that God and Satan are these two equally uh, powerful beings dueling at each other constantly, and we don't know how it's all going to turn out. Um, see, God is the clear victor. In the Bible, Satan answers to God, and his ultimate destruction is promised in the book of Revelation. But the picture is like you've just caught a shark. Uh, you've caught a shark, it's in your boat, and even though it's stuck and its end is near, does not mean that it's smart to take a selfie with your head in its mouth. Um, probably, not, probably not a good idea, because uh, that shark, even though it's caught, can still bite and thrash. 
uh, which explains why there's still so much evil in the world. Um, Though the cross put an end to Satan's plans, he's still thrashing about, causing as much havoc as possible until his, his final end comes. Which then leads us to point number three. You and I ought to be prepared. We ought to be prepared. Uh, At the end of Ephesians 6, Paul details how we can prepare ourselves for the spiritual battle raging around us. And what is interesting to me is not just what he does say, but what he doesn't say. Paul doesn't say, uh, just build yourself a a spirit house, uh, leave some cookies out there, and hope for the best. Uh, There's lots of books and blogs and even well-meaning Christians who spend lots of time... um, looking for, thinking about, and talking about, and venerating angels and demons, and looking for Satan behind every corner. Just walk into uh, Kurong, the Christian bookstore, and you'll see stacks and stacks of, of books by people that claim that they've met angels, or uh, tell you how you can communicate with your own personal guardian angel, or how to recognize or exercise demons from your life. But this isn't how we're called to handle spiritual warfare. Um, in Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his introduction to his book on sort of the spiritual world, uh, a book called The Screwtape Letters, he says, there are two mistakes that we can make. The first is that we become so entrenched in angels and demons and spiritual warfare, we we get so wrapped up, we just keep thinking about it so much that we actually forget about Jesus and what he's already done, that the battle has been won. Um... But he says it's also equally dangerous to have no concern whatsoever about what God and what Satan are up to. To continue living that and believing that whatever happens just happens. Uh, Everything is just cause and effect. That people and culture and governments are all inherently good. When really we're sitting in a boat next to a thrashing shark. That's what the reality is. Both of those extremes are dangerous. Rather, Paul tells us to put on the full armor of God so that when things go down around us, we will be able to stand our ground. He tells us to pursue and live in his truth, to to sink yourself into his word, to know what he means, what he's talking about, to seek his righteousness, to, to pursue Jesus, to be filled with the peace of Christ, to demonstrate and live out our faith, to be confident in our salvation and to be entrenched in God's word, and to pray all the time. To be praying at all times. If you are not doing these things regularly, you might find yourself open to spiritual attack. And you will see friends and family members uh, being lost to the enemy. Pastor David Platt tells this story. He says, in the 1940s, the the, the government of the United States built uh, or commissioned a uh, a battleship called the SS United States. It was an $80 million troop carrier built for the Navy. Uh, It could carry 15,000 troops and was the fastest ship constructed at that time in history. It could go 16,000 kilometers without needing to refuel and could go anywhere in the world in less than 10 days. Uh, The problem, though, was that this ship was never actually used to carry troops at all. Uh, It was once put on standby for the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, but never used as it was designed by the U.S. Navy to be used for. Uh, Instead, it became a luxury liner to presidents and celebrities. Uh, Its barracks that were intended to hold 15,000 troops were remodeled into 695 staterooms, 
four dining halls, three bars, two movie theaters, five acres of open deck with heated pools, 19 elevators, and was the first fully air-conditioned passenger ship. Uh, instead of a vessel for battle used during the hardship of war, the SS United States became, became an indulgence for the wealthy to coast in comfort across the Atlantic. Um, why am I telling you this? Well, Platt says, I am convinced that we need to answer a central question in the church today. And that question is, are we, as the church, a troop carrier or are we a luxury liner? He says, I am convinced that in the church in our day, we have settled into an understanding of the church as luxury liner. The church exists to make me feel comfortable, to adjust to my preferences and cater to my desires. And in the process, we have lost sight of an internal battle that is waging around us. We have a crucial decision before us. Are we going to indulge ourselves in the peaceful comforts of this world? Or are we going to engage ourselves in the battle for people around the world? There are real people whose lives are at stake, and God is calling you to battle. How are you going to respond? Are you prepared? Finally, we are called to trust in Christ. If you have not done this already, I cannot encourage you enough to pursue Jesus. There's a war going on for your soul, and you will not find what you're looking for apart from him. Everything else are distractions from Satan, who the Bible tells us he masquerades as an angel of light. He makes you run after things that don't matter, convincing you things on earth are ultimate things, even making you believe that, well, I'm a decent person, so I certainly don't need to be rescued from anything. Without Jesus, your fate is no different than Satan's. Second Peter 2 says that if God did not spare fallen angels when they turned away from him, how do you think it's going to turn out for you? Trust in Jesus today because, as Peter says in that same passage, the Lord knows how to rescue you from whatever trials you face. And if you are in Christ, we've been given a promise. Um, in the song, It Is Well With My Soul, there's a, a, a verse that I really like, and it says, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Even though Satan's thrashing around, all these things are happening around me, and uh, I'm someone who's broken, it doesn't matter, because in Jesus, it's all been taken care of. He's the one, he poured out his blood for me, and now I'm safe. Paul puts that same idea this way at the end of Romans chapter 8. He says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, uh, nor principalities, nor the pr things present, nor things to come, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If that's true, let's pursue Christ even more until we see the day approaching. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will see a harvest if we trust in Christ and do not give up. We have been given this incredible gift in Jesus. First um, Peter 1 says that even angels, these amazing servants of God, long to look into how God rescued us through the blood of his Son. For those of us in Christ, we've actually been invited to a table. Um, Psalm 23 
that famous psalm about even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. It has this line that I really love. It says, God sets up, puts us at a table, uh, a table in front of our enemies. So even though there's an enemy right in front of us, he's out trying to get us, we can actually sit down in peace because of what God has done. We can eat at this table, we can dine, we can not worry about our fates because our fate has been taken care of through Jesus' body broken and his blood shed on the cross. When we trust in him, we belong to him, and our fate has been decided. We are safe. We're going to end our time today by thinking about this table, by saying, Jesus, thank you for what you've done for me. That because your body was broken and blood shed, uh, the price has been paid. All Satan's flaming arrows at me can't harm me anymore. And the, and the challenge is for us to not just be thankful and remember, but to live this truth out, to be prepared to live it out every single day. For those who are helping uh, me serve communion, can you come forward, please? And as they do so, please allow me to pray. Jesus, we want to thank you, as uh, many of these verses that we looked at have promised us, that you've made a public spectacle of all these powers that are seeking to blind us to your love, to being uh, the truth that we are your children, that our eternity is in heaven with you. It's through the work of Jesus, through his death and resurrection, that we can have this guarantee of life, that nothing can separate us from your love. And yet you call us to be aware of this, this spiritual battle that is waging around us, to not be ignorant, but instead to be prepared. We do that by following you more, by trusting you more, by reading and growing in your word, by, by praying but ultimately trusting that your sacrifice on that cross, your body broken and blood shed for us, has, has won the battle. And as we take these elements, Lord, we pray that um, we would walk out of here confidently, being thankful that you've done all the work. Help us to continue to trust in and live in you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.